I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Today's show is sponsored by Coinbase Prime, a leading prime brokerage for digital assets. While Coinbase is widely known for its retail business, Coinbase also provides the bridge to the digital asset world for institutional investors, high net worth individuals, financial institutions, and corporate investors. Through their professional trading platform, deep and diversified liquidity, execution expertise, and Coinbase custody, one of the largest and most trusted digital asset custodians, Coinbase Prime is a solution for institutions looking to enter the digital asset markets. For more information, visit prime.coinbase.com. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer, and it's going to be a really good one, so buckle up. I have Peter Johnson, partner at Jump Capital, with me today. Peter has been really important in the overall growth of fintech and has moved into the world of digital assets and blockchain over the last few years. Prior to Jump, Peter was at uh, Morgan Stanley uh, in their investment banking division and was also at Deloitte. Uh, for a number of years. So again, we love having people that have crossed the proverbial chasm into digital assets. And Peter has done that very well. Before we get too far into some of the narratives we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about Peter's 2021 narratives and things that he thinks are going to come to fruition or he's going to be watching. So again, this is going to be one that you want to pay attention to, take some notes. And uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. So before we get too far into that, Peter, Tell us a little bit about Jump Capital, what you guys do there, and your relation to the world of digital assets. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks David. Uh, so Jump Capital, we are an industry-focused, thesis-driven venture capital fund uh, that is funded exclusively by the owners and employees of Jump Trading. Um, so I'll talk more about kind of all that. So industry-focused, thesis-driven, um, we, we invest in specific industries, specifically fintech and crypto, IT and data infrastructure, B2B SaaS, and media. Uh, I lead our fintech and our crypto investments. I've been doing that for the last close to eight years now. Um, and within each of those industries, we have very specific theses. Um, you know, we have strong beliefs that we're looking to invest behind. And when we make investments, we're typically making Series A investments, kind of three to $10 million is a typical investment for us, but we'll go earlier, we'll, we'll go later. And that's kind of just the, um, the typical. Um, and as I mentioned, the capital that we invest, it comes exclusively from the owners and employees of Trump Trading. Uh, Jump Trading is a just a massively successful global quantitative trading firm, one of the largest traders uh, in the world in, in many asset classes. And they started trading crypto in um, 2014, 2015, uh, started as a research project. Uh, really, we have a research lab down at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, um, where we had some it was you know, interns and you know, PhD students and, and things like that that we had to start working on. Um, you know, what became our, our crypto trading operation. Uh, and there it was, you know, build the gateway, start building some strategies, uh, you know, see if this turns into something. Back in, you know, 24, 2015, that really positioned, positioned to jump extremely well, you know, during the run of 2017 to become one of the largest crypto traders in the world. 
Um, and you know, since then, we've been involved in crypto in a variety of ways. Um, one, continue to be jump trading is continues to be a very large uh, on exchange market maker and trader, probably the largest uh, on exchange trader in the world. Uh, we do have direct strategic relationships um, with a variety of companies in the crypto space, whether those are brokerages or foundations or DeFi projects, where we can be a partner, a customer, a liquidity provider, um, and also an investor. And then the third way we're involved is the area that I lead, which is uh, being a venture investor and that we are in investors in um, over 15 companies in the crypto space. A lot of uh, exchanges around the world, brokerages, uh, you know, trading uh, infrastructure, uh, things like that are, are places that we've had a lot of success investing. Awesome. And so before we get into your predictions or narratives, if you will. And again, there's going to be a list of them here. So get your pens and paper ready if you still use pens and paper or start typing your notes on Notepad. Um, but before we get into that, you now have been at this in this world investing for you know roughly seven plus years, as you mentioned. Talk to us about, and again, remember that a lot of the people that are listening are family offices or other institutional investors that are just starting to jump into this. One of the things I've been really amazed with is the size of opportunities that has grown dramatically over the last few years, the last two years specifically. But over the course of the last seven plus years that you've been in diligence, you've been observing, you've been investing, would you agree that the investment opportunity set is far larger today than it ever has been in the history of this asset class? Absolutely. Yeah, without question. The, the space has matured incredibly over those seven plus years and the you know investment opportunities have um you know grown pretty exponentially you know back in you know 2013 really is when i started paying attention to bitcoin um you know one it was only bitcoin and the infrastructure to invest in it was very nascent um you know at that time you, you were still sending money wiring money to um to Mt. Gox if, if you wanted to invest in in bitcoin now you know there's you know, pretty sophisticated infrastructure around trading and investing. There's trusted, um, you know, custodians, trusted trading partners. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, very reputable companies to invest in. You know, there's great products to invest in. Um, it's really matured pretty amazingly over that, those, you know, seven plus years. Agreed. So Peter gave me 14 different predictions here. And because I try to keep it at about 30 to 35 minutes, I don't know if we're going to be able to get into every single one of those, but we're going to damn well try. Um, so the first few uh, surround around Bitcoin, and then there's corporate activity. Then there's also crypto product offerings. Um, and one thing, Peter, one of the things that I always talk about, I kind of get away from the word crypto and, and I kind of focus on the world digital assets. Hopefully you don't mind. I think you can appreciate why. And then we also talk about uh, things like DeFi, the Oracle problems, et cetera, et cetera. So again, a lot here, people. So we're going to try to get through it all, uh, but we might not. And if we don't, I'm sure Peter will give us a way to find out more about where we can find all these things. But let's go with the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Peter talks about Bitcoin reaching a certain price, something that usually I don't pay attention to. But coming from Peter, I think it's really interesting. Uh, he's talking about a target of $50,000 uh, in 2021. How do we get there? Why do we get there, Peter? Yeah, and I, I typically don't. I don't think I've ever publicly made a price prediction before. That's something that I try to stay away from myself. I think it's just, I know where it's going from a macro perspective, but short-term price predictions are hard. Uh, this year, I, I did, I'm saying specifically, I think it will go to 50000 
because I think that the the market dynamics are so clear um, that we're really perfectly set up for that this year. And, and why is that? It, it's fairly simple supply and demand dynamics right now. That the supply of Bitcoin, there's going to be, you know, there's there's new Bitcoin every block. There's a little over 300,000 new Bitcoin will be minted in 2021. That's a completely fixed supply. Um, you also have, you know, Bitcoin holders who could be selling. That could be a source of supply into the market. And at this point, my view is that most Bitcoin holders are long-term investors, long-term believers um, that are not going to be, you know, they may take some, some money off the table, but they're not going to be big sellers. And I, and I think you've seen that on, on the market run-up. So you have this really limited supply, an almost inelastic supply curve. And that is intersecting with a demand curve that is growing pretty exponentially. You have the you know, global macro traders, the Paul Tudor Jones, Stan Drunkenmiller, et cetera, coming into the market. Mass Mutual, I think, is a, mm-hmm. a sign of what's to come from insurance companies and, and pensions. Um, family offices, certainly, uh, as you know, are coming in more. Just demand is really increasing. I think it's going to increase pretty exponentially in 2021. So what happens when you have that you know, vastly increasing demand curve and an elastic supply curve is, is you have a price that, you know, needs to go up to meet that. Right. So that's why I'm, I'm very confident that that will see 50,000 this year. So let's talk about what's driving that demand. Obviously we talked, when you talked about the supply and we know about the supply issues out there that has been documented and let's talk about the demand side. So micro strategy, and this also leads into another you know kind of question, another prediction um, you mentioned that very few corporate treasuries buy Bitcoin, but there is one out there and they've been buying a lot of Bitcoin micro strategy. They started in August and they bought about $425 million worth of Bitcoin for their treasury due to the fact or the notion that the team there feels that US dollar is going to debase and that they rather see a their treasury going into a asset that is accreting. And that is deflationary versus inflationary. And so they did that purchase. Um, their CEO, Michael Saylor, also bought personally as well, too. I think about $200 million worth of Bitcoin. But they just raised somewhere in the north of a range of around five to $600 million uh, based off of a convertible note, if I'm not mistaken. And so they're going to take another 600 and some odd million dollars and buy more Bitcoin. Um, so talk to us about the demand side. Is the demand side coming in from what you're hearing from those that feel that it is in the face of potential inflationary pressures that they are getting very interested in a store of wealth such as Bitcoin? Yes. Yes. I think 100% that is that is the narrative um, that is really driving a lot of these investments that we are seeing this. I think it's Paul Tudor Jones called the great monetary um, uh, inflation. Um, where this kind of vast money printing is, is happening um, and, and people are looking for for assets that are a store of value. And, and Bitcoin is really catching that narrative and serving that, that purpose very well. I think Michael Saylor, I completely agree with his um, his investment thesis. You know, he called the pile of cash on their balance sheet a, a melting ice cube in this environment. And, and I think that's right. Um, so I do think we are going to continue to see, you know, global macro investors, pensions, insurance companies, um, you know, big asset managers. I think that those will all be coming in in a big way in 2021. I don't think corporate treasuries will be coming in in a big way. I think that MicroStrategy and also Square are both unique firms in that they are, you know, somewhat controlled by their CEOs and they're able to kind of make these, um, 
these purchases, if, if you look at the typical role, role of a corporate treasurer, you know, it's short-term cash management. It's not to make these, you know, macro bets. Um, the, you know, the, most treasuries don't hold gold. They don't hold, um, you know, venture funds. They, they don't have those types of things on their balance sheet. So I don't think it's going to be big corporate treasuries, uh, buying it from, uh, you know, companies. But I do think all of those other segments I mentioned earlier, I think that that's where the demand is going to come from. That's interesting. I think a lot of people were saying, oh, the, the, and the corporates are coming in, the corporates are coming in, kind of like how Novogratz was saying, the herd is coming, the herd is coming. Everyone's like, oh, the corporates are going to start coming in, they're going to start following suit. Interesting. I like that uh, kind of contrarian view. You also talk about central banks actually buying Bitcoin. Why is that? Yeah, I think central banks will. Um, we've seen one central bank so far buying Bitcoin. Unfortunately, it's, it's Iran, um, which is not the kind of central bank we really want buying Bitcoin. I think we will see other kind of more reputable countries and central banks buying Bitcoin in 2021. And the reason being, you know, central bankers are, are macro, uh, you know, folks. They're going to they're look at the world, uh, you know, somewhat similar to how the global macro traders who started to buy Bitcoin are looking at the world. And they're going to look at um, Bitcoin as a potential, a strategic asset to hold and in a store of value as countries around the world are you know, printing money. So, so where do you go to, to store value in that environment? which is you know, part of the job of a central bank is to you know, have strategic reserves of, of foreign currencies and other assets. I think that they will increasingly look to buy Bitcoin and have Bitcoin as part of that. Um, and I think it'll be really meaningful for the market when we hear about the first um, you know, more reputable central bank outside of Iran holding Bitcoin. I want to go back to that corporate treasury discussion real quick. So and this leads into the M&A conversation that we're going to have too. PayPal came into the space in a pretty significant way over the last few weeks, and now they are authorizing, they're giving the ability for people around the world, over 300 million of their users, the ability to buy, hold, and sell digital assets. And based off of some research from Mizuho Securities, it looks like about over 20% have already started to participate in that. PayPal seems to have a CEO that is fairly innovative, forward-thinking, and gets Bitcoin and digital assets. Could they possibly be someone who would enter into that foray like MicroStrategy and Square? They could, yeah. Um, I mean, that, that could be, be an interesting one. I Again, I, I wouldn't bet on it just because I, I don't think it's the job of most corporate treasurers to be making kind of global macro bets. But if you mm-hmm. were to say, you know, which, which corporate treasuries could potentially Hold Bitcoin. It's a fun game. Okay. Come on, Peter. It's a fun yeah, game. Pay, Everyone pay, plays pay, the game. Everyone's been playing the game for a few weeks. <laughs> Come on, it's a fun game. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a fun game, and I think PayPal would be would be a good bet if you're going to bet on somebody else to do it. Right. Yeah, that's it's it's. I was having a little fun with Peter. It's just a game that everyone's been playing, kind of, you know, uh, you know, Wheel of Fortune, where you have a bunch of publicly traded companies on the wheel, and you spin it, and you see which one it lands on, and you say, is that possible or is that not possible? You know, Microsoft. You know. XYZ, you know, PayPal, every, you know, all these other ones. So it's just a little fun. But getting to why I brought that up is that, you know, PayPal actually, as I mentioned, had gotten into the space in a significant way. And there was purely speculation that they were going to be an acquirer of some of the companies within the digital asset ecosystem. So we're starting to hear some kind of rumors or speculation that some of the publicly traded companies out there are going to be, you know, on the acquisition hunt over the next few months. 
But regardless, there we've already seen internally within the digital asset landscape some internal M&A. We saw Coinbase acquiring Togomi this year. We saw Kraken making some acquisitions. We saw BitGo making some acquisitions. Talk to us about 2021 and M&A mania beginning, as you allude to. Yeah, I, th- I think there's going to be M&A mania in 2021. I think it's going to be huge. Uh, if you think through you know, what, what does the world look like um, you know, six months from now, Bitcoin's at 50,000. Uh, you know, Square, PayPal, Silvergate, Grayscale, they're, they're all putting up huge numbers from their crypto offerings. Everybody else that's not in crypto, financial institutions, tech companies, uh, you know, maybe they've been dabbling, but they're behind. They're, they're going to realize that they need to be in this market and they need to be in it quickly. So they're going to look to, they're going to look to partner, build or buy to get into the market. I think building's going to take too long for almost all of them. Partnering will be attractive, and I think we'll see a ton of partnerships between traditional you know, financial institutions, tech firms, and crypto companies. And then I think a lot of those will very quickly turn into M&A discussions as these companies realize that they, you know, they want to lock up, they need to lock up this partner uh, for their crypto offering. And I think you're going to see, I think, think you're going to see bidding wars for some of the, the most attractive targets in crypto. And I also think you're going to see a lot of acquihires where there's you know, a fair number of companies in crypto that have very impressive teams. Maybe they haven't gotten a lot of commercial traction. Um, but the talent, the crypto talent that's out there will become a very hot commodity this year. And I think a lot of, you'll see a lot of M&A from that as well. So I'm going to jump into one question, then jump back into a conversation about IPOs coming into 21. Um, but you mentioned that a major bank offers crypto prime brokerage in the same type of parallel that we're talking about M&A. Do you think that that comes from potential M&A acquisitions where a major bank then offers uh, prime? Yeah, I, th- I think it certainly could. I mean, you've seen a number of crypto companies, uh, you know, offering, you know, quote unquote, prime brokerage. So some of them are you know, getting pretty close to what you typically see it from a prime broker. And it could have a major bank or a financial institution acquire one of those to offer, or offer that. I think absolutely. I think that that's a very probable scenario. I do think whether it is uh, acquiring, which is probably the most likely way this will happen or building and partnering. You'll see a major bank that is offering, you know, crypto prime brokerage where their clients can get leverage from the bank. They can trade across multiple venues. They can cross margin their crypto, their non-crypto holdings. Um, you know, all of those things that, that traders look for from a, from a prime broker. And really the lack of that type of service has made crypto so kind of capital inefficient, um, to date. I think a lot of that will be solved as we see more of these kind of true prime brokerage offerings from financial institutions. I agree with that. So as I said again, we were going to go to IPOs. Now there is one that is out there where you know there is a very you know distinct possibility, and I think they're already kind of on the move with that. But there are other ones out there that have been discussed in terms of going public. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that in terms of multiple companies going IPO, and do you think that? the emergence of SPACs may actually facilitate that even further. Yeah, I, I do. Um, so I, I think that we'll see multiple IPOs, um, or at least companies that become public. And I think that some of those could be uh, SPACs or direct, direct listings. Uh, Coinbase, you know, I think that, that they are very widely uh, you know, known to be looking to IPO next year. I, I expect that that will happen. And then there are a number of other companies that could, could follow. You know, BlockFi is often discussed uh, as one that could. You know, Kraken uh, potentially could. I think CoinShares uh, could. There are a no- number of other companies that are of the size, especially if crypto grows the way I think it will next year. 
So they could be IPO candidates. And there's also, as you mentioned, a ton of SPAC money out there. And I think that some of them be, could become public companies via SPAC. As I said, people get your notes, get your pens and paper. Hopefully you're taking notes because a lot of good stuff here. So to get into a very interesting part here, uh, there's a conversation uh, that you allude to as quote unquote crypto dollars. And so let's talk about that. Um, I want to jump into one of them first and foremost. DeFi accessibility enables exponential user growth. Now you and I both know, but for those that are not that are not in the in the know, um, who are just getting into this world, decentralized finance really exploded this year. It was on the back of you know months and months and months of testing of experimentation. Then all of a sudden, it really started to become sticky. And so you saw the total value locked, the amount of money that started to come into some of these platforms, totally around $800 million at the end of April of this year. And it has now exceeded over $14 billion over the last few weeks here. So it's exponentially grown. And when I tell people that, their eyes kind of wide open because they know that that is fairly significant growth. And so one of the issues is that kind of in the Uber-esque type of go-fast break things type of model. Some of those founders went fast. They went from their test net to their main net and some things broke. And so I'm curious when you're talking about exponential user growth and accessibility, what are your thoughts about that? How are things going to get righted, if you will? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, um, as you mentioned, that you know, DeFi growth was huge. That the the total value locked was you know just these massive numbers. Users, um, it was smaller growth. But by some estimates, there's only around you know 200,000 people who are actually um, you know participating in DeFi. So it's a lot of capital. Um, you know, some users, but it's not a huge number of users yet. And I think that the reasons are some of the reasons you mentioned. One, it's the the accessibility. I don't. I still don't think it's there. Just from an ease of use, you still need to. You know, go get Ether, put it in a MetaMask, um, you know, use that MetaMask um, on these decentralized applications. It's, it's not simple. It's not intuitive, um, you know, for your you know, typical, you know, family office out there, you know, going through all these steps, I think is pretty unlikely. So there's just the, like, how do you access DeFi? And then there's also the, you know, risk of, you know, that these are, a lot of these are untested, um, you know, smart contracts, product projects, you know, they, they get to billions of dollars of value locked and then they're hacked the next day, those, those types of things. So I think that this will get solved in a couple of ways. I think that the accessibility um, will change pretty dramatically just from better, better user interfaces, making these things much easier to use and access for people that are not, um, you know, long time crypto people, you know, highly technical people that, you know, everyone can you know, access this just as easily as they can get on Coinbase um, or potentially even easier than that right now. Um, and then two is that um, through that better accessibility that will help um, guide people to, you know, the DeFi, uh, you know, exchanges, projects, et cetera, that are, that are safe, that have had their, their code tested, that it's, you know, that they're not going to get hacked and, and lose money on. So I think that combination of better accessibility and uh, better guidance uh, for folks on kind of where they could, can deploy their capital in DeFi in a safe way. I think that, that that will help open it up from, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of users over the next year. And so you also talk about, as we're on this thread about DeFi, that DeFi volumes outpace CeFi volumes. And so we've seen this happen 
This is not just pie in the sky, where Uniswap has actually been on par or outpaced Coinbase. I think it was around the middle to end of August, early September. So you're predicting that this is going to continue. And is there any driver of that? Is it because of changes in KYC AML in terms of some of the C5 platforms shutting off U.S. investors? What's driving that? Yeah, it, it could be. Um, I hope it's not. I hope that it's not um, you know, things like the Treasury rule that have been discussed that would make it harder to um, you know, go into you know, quote-unquote self-hosted wallets. I actually think that that would be very damaging to, to DeFi. Um, I think that the primary driver here will be developments on the DeFi side. I think that it's going to be um, better Oracle solutions. So the, the ability to feed non-crypto data into um, these smart contracts, things like equity prices um, to make synthetic assets uh, in DeFi. I think that the growth of the derivatives market uh, over the next year in DeFi will be very big. Um, you know, derivatives have not really um, existed in a meaningful way in DeFi this year. I think that there is a lot of innovation that is happening there. And I think that that will kind of explode exponentially next year. Um, and then I'm also hopeful that we'll see more volumes on prediction markets. That's something that, you know, traditionally prediction markets have been slow to take off. I think that it's a really interesting use case for DeFi. So my hope is that between derivatives, you know, traditional assets, which are increasingly brought into DeFi, uh, but better oracles, and then prediction markets, um, those will be the three drivers that will really see uh, DeFi take off. I could spend a better part of an hour talking about prediction markets because I'm enthralled with them, but at the same time, there are pronounced issues, I guess you can say with bias or with user data or with participants in there, but I think you address that with the Oracle problem being solved or addressed further. But again, I don't want to deviate because that could be a very long tail conversation where we get into technicals. I want to keep us on because we're actually doing really well and getting through this. You talk about crypto dollars reaching $100 billion in supply. Now, you and I might have different nomenclature or ways of discussing what that is. Are crypto dollars in your sentiment here, is that what normally would be called stable coins that are pegged to the US dollar? Yep, yeah. Um, pegged to the US dollar or, or could be pegged to uh, other fiat currencies. Um, I like the term crypto dollars, uh, as I believe coined by Nick Carter at Castle Island Ventures. Um, it's a play off euro dollars, um, you know, which are you know, dollars outside the US system, um, which could be euro dollars, can actually be currencies other than US dollars um, as well. Um, but yeah, so crypto dollars are effectively stable coins that they are one and the same. Uh, stable coins grew in 2020. It was massive growth went from, I believe, less than 5 billion outstanding to over, I don't know where it's standing now, but it's over 20 for sure, um, billion dollars outstanding. Uh, most of that is Tether. Uh, Tether is the largest portion uh, by far. And then USDC is the, the second after that. I think that 2021 is going to be continued huge growth. So I think going from, you know, 20 something where we are now to over 100 is very easily going to happen. Um, these, you know, crypto dollars or stable coins are increasingly used for they're the, you know, the base pair for any crypto exchange that doesn't actually have access to a bank account. So they are kind of the preferred um, way of offering dollars, a, a dollar based, uh, you know, trading and settlement account across the crypto industry. 
And then I also think that we're going to see increasing crypto dollarization. And what I mean by that is um, people in countries around the world uh, using dollars instead of their um, the fiat currencies of their of their countries and using that um, and accessing dollars um, through through crypto dollars. So they'll be using Tether or USDC or, or other um, other crypto dollars. And the, and the reason is that this is you know, places like Venezuela, Argentina, et cetera, places that have hyperinflation, people that places that people would like to access U.S. dollars um, for saving, for spending, uh, et cetera, where it's just a drastically better option than their uh, than their home co- country's currency. And now we have these open network dollars where anybody with a any, anybody with a smartphone can, can suddenly access dollars. And I think the implication of that is going to be that more and more people around the world are going to be using dollars, um, and the form that they're going to be using dollars will be these crypto dollars. And so that gets us to your last point, and then I'm going to ask you one more, just because I want to be greedy. So you say no major currency CBCDs are launched in 2021, which I think is actually surprising because we've seen China jumping into the foray with DCEP. You've seen others discussing it, and you're talking about stable coins, crypto dollars reaching a fairly de- you know decent supply. Those seem to kind of go a little contrarian to each other. Talk about that. Yeah, so CBDCs, there's a ton of discussion out there and a little actual a- actual action. I think the China um, action that you mentioned, that that is the real action that's happening out there. I think most everything out there is discussion that won't lead too much. It reminds me a little bit of the enterprise blockchain discussions from year, years ago. A lot of noise um, didn't really lead to a lot. The reason I think that will happen for CBDC is, is if you look at the structure of a CBDC, how it's typically proposed is that it is giving individuals accounts at the central bank, where the, where the central bank is is tracking, um, you know, people's accounts, their their ownership of of you know dollars or uh, whatever currency it may be. That pretty much by definition disintermediates the role of commercial banks in in tracking people's assets and in the services that the commercial bank performs. So I don't think that you're going to see central banks disintermediate commercial banks in most countries. I think that there are specific places you could see it happen. I think China is the prime example of that. Uh, but even China, uh, they've been testing in 2020. I think that they'll continue to test in 2021. I don't think it will be widely rolled out at that time. And outside of China, I just don't see a lot of countries that are would make that what I see is a really drastic change. Um, in disremediating the commercial banking system by offering a CBDC. Interesting. That is, as I said, a little contrarian to what has been the gossip or the talk of the sandbox, if you will. So interesting point on that. As I said, I'm going to take one more minute, and I want your thoughts on regulatory. So we have a new administration coming in the next few weeks. We have heard as a community, as an ecosystem, that we will have potentially a very decent proponent at the SEC. That's obviously TBD. We don't know if that's going to happen or not. But we have seen Brian Brooks, who is now the head of the OCC, be very proactive and positive towards the 
adoption and the infrastructure for digital assets. We've seen the head of the CFTC positively opine about Ethereum uh, recently. And so I'm curious, from a regulatory standpoint, do you have any thoughts about 2021, what we might be seeing? Yes, I think that the biggest regulatory uh, or regulatory related change in 2021 will be that we'll finally get an ETF. I think that that is what everyone has been waiting for. I think that that, I think that that will happen in 2021. That obviously depends a lot on who ends up leading the SEC. But I think we're set up where it should be approved in 2021. The situation we're currently in, I don't think is a good situation where you have you know, an effective monopoly by Grayscale with their OTC products. Um, you know, products that trade at a huge premium. It's not good for the retail investor. Um, you know, it's good for the, you know, folks that are doing the grayscale trade and, and making money off of that, but it's really bad, frankly, for the retail investor. And it's not grayscale's fault. They're, they're a great company and they're good products. Um, but the fact that, um, you know, that, that kind of ARB there isn't able to be closed because of the structure of those products that they're not a typical ETF. I think it's really unfortunate. I think it's bad for retail investors. I think that you are going to see increasing pressure from large asset managers um, that want an ETF approved, that want multiple ETFs approved because they want to get into the game. And I think that the SEC will, will realize that the current situation isn't good, that there are a number of other players that are really going to push to to get ETFs approved, and that 2021 we'll see it happen. Okay, so I'm not going to be greedy anymore. Peter has a busy day ahead of him, as we're all in this world, which 24-7, 365. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was Peter Johnson, partner at Jump Capital. This was highly enlightening. As I said, hopefully you all took notes, or thankfully, because of technology, you can rewind now, and you can listen to these pieces over and over again. And I highly recommend you do that. Peter, thank you for coming on. Hopefully we'll have you on again sometime in 2021 to actually see how those predictions are playing. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.